Um, and tonight we are going to be wrapping it up with the last, really the last six, seven chapters of the Book of Acts that we're going to be studying. Um, again, as we've done each each week, um, what is this? It's a cross. It's a cross. And where is this cross hanging? Rome. In Rome, in the Colosseum, above the Emperor's Gate. And again, it's just a reminder to us of the transforming power of the gospel. That in a place where Christians once died, now Jesus is honored. Um, and, and that just goes up to, to that's just proof, really, of the revolution that Christ brought in, the contagious Christianity that began with his life, death, and resurrection, and continues on even till today. Um, now, we've seen as our outline of Acts from the beginning, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, this great verse that Jesus says as he is ascending to heaven, when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we've said throughout this study, that verse is not so much a command as it is a promise. It is what took place in the first generation of people who were Christ followers, as it went from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, the area around Jerusalem, all the way to what they knew of as the ends of the earth, which is Rome and the edge of the Roman Empire. Um, we know that there's also more to the earth beyond Rome, right? But one of the things that's happened as the church has continued to grow even since then is that the gospel has continued to go to make it all the way to far away nooks and crannies like Mormon of Mormon. Think about the extent of that message. Um, you know, Jay, you're, I, I don't know all of your story of how you came to Christ, <laughs> uh, but did you come to Christ in Hawaii? Yes, I did. So in the Hawaiian islands, yeah. the message of Jesus made it to you. It's there. That, that is, this is a promise, right? When the Holy Spirit comes, the followers of Jesus will be witnesses to Jesus to the ends of the earth. And I think from Jerusalem, Hawaii, what, where, what, what city were you in? Honolulu. In Honolulu. Honolulu has got to be pretty close to the ends of the earth. It's pretty close. There are no places need to be, be going. It's a beautiful end of the earth, right? But, it, but it's, it's right near that end of the earth. Right. And so we just are reminded of that, right? Just don't, don't ever let that escape you. Um, the, what Jesus promised in Acts 1-8 has actually come to pass. And all of us, by just our existence as followers of Jesus, is a reminder of just how far that message has gone. It has gone on now for 2,000 years to count. Now, as we walk through this, we have seen that Jesus is not dead or retired. But he's alive and well. His church is growing, and it's beginning to go in the early days of, of the church moving out, planting churches, even amidst difficulty, discipling those churches uh, with a sense of destiny of where this is all headed. And part of what God is even going to use is testimonies and trials that we'll see in the life of Paul near the end of his life to help the gospel continue to go and to move. And so that's where we're going to be tonight in the last several chapters of the book of Acts. Again, remembering what we have seen, Jesus is risen and not retired. He's still the same Jesus, but we are still the same humanity. The same spirit that rejected Christ in the first century continues to reject Christ even today. Uh, we, we've seen that we are to be witnesses everywhere we go, even places like Samaria or places that would be surprising for the witness of Christ to, to go out even today. 
Uh, and as that goes out, it's transforming lives, even like the life of Saul, who becomes Paul the Apostle. Then in week two, we saw how the growth of the church worked through Peter's ministry and Paul's ministry and through the Jerusalem Council as they kind of set the boundaries and edges for the gospel moving into the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. And then in week three, we saw the, the, the second missionary journey of Paul, how there was a split at the beginning between Paul and Barnabas, and then they moved through Galatia to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth, and then home through Ephesus, kind of a, a who's who of towns of the New Testament, all a part of that second missionary journey of Paul. Then last week, we saw discipleship and destiny as Paul left on a third missionary journey, spending more time in Ephesus at this time, visiting again his friends in Macedonia and Greece, places like Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica, gathering an offering to be able to take back to the, the, the believers in Jerusalem who were struggling and suffering because of their faith. And so we, we see that happening, and so Paul collects that offering, and then he heads back home, and he ends in Jerusalem concocting a plan with the leaders of the Jerusalem church about what was next. So that's the story that we've seen so far that takes us all the way through the beginning parts of chapter 21, and, and now we're going to pick up uh, in week five as we look at this testimonies uh, and, and trials, I should say trials, specifically in Acts 21 through 22. So what do we see inside of these verses? Well, again, it's helpful for us to remember where this fits in chronology. We've seen this graphic uh, taken from the Talk Through the Bible book by Wilkinson. The last half of the book of Acts, that's what this top bar is, chapter 13 through chapter 28. These three numbers represent the three missionary journeys of Paul that happened during that time. This one with the bars represents Paul's first Roman imprisonment. When he was arrested and he was detained first in the Middle East and then in Rome for a season, that event right here is really what we're going to be talking about tonight in, in that season of Paul's life, which will take us to the end of the book of Acts. As you can tell, there are other things that happen after the, the timeline of the book of Acts. The story ain't over at the end of Acts. It's just, it was written at one point, so it becomes like, you know, like a newspaper that can't tell tomorrow's news today. But Acts ended at a certain point, and it ends right here. Paul had more life after that, including another imprisonment in Rome and different things. But you'll notice we saw on the first missionary journey, at the conclusion of that, Paul writes the letter to the Galatians. At the end of the second missionary journey, he writes letters to the Thessalonians. At the end of his third missionary journey, he writes letters to the Corinthians and to the Romans. Uh, and then we have over here, finally, this... If you're watching at home, we, there's some cool music happening here. Uh, we have the first Roman imprisonment, and in that Roman imprisonment, the time of the Roman imprisonment, we have the writing of the letters to the Ephesians, the Colossians, to Philemon, and to the Philippians. And so a lot is happening in the season of this particular uh, section that we're taking a look at. So, again, it's this section right here of Paul's life and the development of the church we're going to see in chapters 21 through 28 of Acts. So, what happens in this section? Well, the first thing that we see happening in this section is that Paul 
is arrested. So remember, last time he shows up in Jerusalem, and just to again to refresh our memory, what did he show up in Jerusalem to do? To give a offering. an offering that he collected from his friends in Asia and in Macedonia and in Greece. He collected an offering to take back to the saints in Jerusalem. And so he shows up with this offering to give it, but also to reconnect with the church there, also um, to be able to pray together. He had a sense of destiny to go to that location. And when he shows up, the leaders of the Jerusalem church said, Paul, we're going to have some trouble. And the trouble is going to happen is that there's a whole bunch of people in this city that don't like you. They don't like what you're doing. They don't like the ministry that you're having around the world. And, and they wanted to put a stop to what, what Paul was up to. And that, in fact, is what happens. So even though they come up with a plan of what they're to do, when Paul shows up in the temple, a big uproar happens, and he is arrested. The events of this section happen in the city of Jerusalem, which is back here in Israel. Now, what happened during the time of his arrest? Well, he's attacked. Paul shows up, and it says in 20, chapter 21, verses 27 through 36, that there were Jews from Asia that came to stir up trouble against Paul. Who are the Jews from Asia? Well, they would be the same Jews that gave Paul grief in Asia. They, they followed him home. People in the Galatian region, people in the uh, region around Ephesus, they just, Paul had opposition in those cities. That opposition followed him back to Jerusalem. So it wasn't even homeboys from Jerusalem that circled against him, but it was people who didn't like his influence, Jewish people who didn't like his influence among the Gentiles, that showed up to cause problems for Paul when he got back to Jerusalem. So they, they caused quite a stir, and, and they began to attack him. Uh, the situation gets out of control so quickly that the Romans step in to save Paul. It'd be one of those moments where you're like, yay, the Romans showed up, right? Like, they're going to create their own set of problems for Paul. But the Roman army steps in, in Jerusalem, and protects Paul from the mob. They just didn't want mob violence to take this man's life. They wanted to know what was going on. So they step in. They actually think that Paul is an Egyptian revolutionary. You know, they, they assume anybody that would have that kind of reaction must be some kind of an outlaw. Um, and so they arrest Paul, really suspecting the worst, not even knowing who he is, not knowing what he did, but because of that. And so they're, they're trying to ask Paul, in the midst of this mob, what did you do? And they ask the crowd, what did he do? And the crowd is yelling and screaming so many things that the leader of the Roman army in Jerusalem cannot ascertain what it is that Paul had done. And so in the midst of all that chaos, in the midst of all that, he ends up taking him inside the barracks to try to talk, ask him one-on-one -on -one what in the world is, is going on here. Um, and so as he begins to take him in, into the barracks, Paul says, hey, could I just pause for a second on these steps and talk to this crowd? And the leader of the Roman army goes, well, that's kind of an odd request, but okay, go for it. And so Paul stops and he addresses the crowd. And he begins to speak to them, it says, in Hebrew, or the Hebrew dialect. And so as he's speaking to them in their own language, they get quiet because they're like, ooh, he's one of us, and we want to hear what he has to say. 
And so in the midst of this mob, the mob is silenced, and suddenly Paul has the stage. And in verses 27 of chapter 21 through chapter 22, verse 29, Paul gives a speech to the group uh, there, trying to argue, um, you know, for, for why he is there and what this is all about. Now, as he is speaking to them, um, they are listening. They are listening with rapt attention as Paul walks through a number of things. Right? Paul is walking through all of these details about uh, his conversion. He's walking through details about uh, miracles. He's walking through details about even his participation in the murder of someone. Right? So all of this Paul is walking through. And as Paul is walking through all of those details, everybody is quiet. Everybody is listening. Everybody is, is with him in that moment. This mob that was ready to tear him to pieces, suddenly a pin could, be, could drop on the, on the steps outside of that fortress as Paul is giving this, this speech, and they're listening. But there came a moment where Paul said something that caused them to absolutely flip out. Can you imagine what that was? I mean, what would he have said? Would he have said that he saw a resurrected Jesus? No, he said that earlier. That didn't cause him. What was it that he said that caused them to absolutely lose it? Well, we see this happen here in, in Acts 22, verse 22. It says, up to this word, they listened to it. But then they raised their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So Paul says something just before chapter 22, verse 22, that leads them to say, this man must die. What was it? Well, we got to turn one verse back, because in verse 21 we find out what he had said that was so controversial that they believed made him, you know, enemy of the state number one, that he should be killed, is that he said that he was to be sent, Jesus said to him he was to be sent to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And when Paul said, I was sent to the Gentiles, they absolutely lose it, Right? Does that strike you as odd? I mean, it's just such a strange thing to our ears. They, they would lose it, not over even his statement that Jesus resurrected from the dead. That didn't rise to the level of their throwing rocks at him. What really got him was the implication of the resurrection. And that was that people, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their background, could have access to God, the same access that Jewish people felt like was their right. Suddenly, it was being extended to others, and that threatened them. That bothered them. And so they attack Paul, and they, they say that he must die because of this. Now, in this section of Paul's arrest in this season, what is a response that we might see? Well, the response that we would see, I think, in this is, is we could see a number of things. This is one thing I want us to see. That we are witnesses to God's work. We are not God. We are followers of the Savior. We're not the Savior. You know, sometimes we think of ministry as it is our job to save someone. Or it's our job that, that somebody else would make the decision to follow Christ that we want them to make. And when we begin to put that kind of a pressure upon ourselves then we really have taken a position that we were never built to carry. It's not up to us. By God's grace, we have a privilege to be able to give a witness to what God has done, 
by God's grace, we get to follow the Savior and invite others to follow Him with us. But ultimately, the work to transform someone's heart and for them to lean in and see their lives transformed, that's a work of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of individuals. And I, I say that here because Paul says everything right. Paul gives an amazing speech. And yet, what, what is the response at the end of the sermon? They want to kill the pastor, right? And it's just a reminder again that Paul was faithful in this moment to do what Jesus said to do. You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will give testimony to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Everywhere you go, you're going to give a witness to me. Paul was faithful to do that. The response in this moment was not what I'm sure Paul had hoped would happen. And yet he was faithful in that moment. And it's a reminder to us that we, by God's grace, have a privilege of, of not taking on a responsibility that's not ours, but just giving a testimony to, a witness to what God has done in our lives. So when we think about that with each other, whether it's in our homes or with our friends, wherever we go, we have the opportunity to be a witness to God's work. And we have an opportunity to point people to the Savior. But God still sits sovereign over those moments. And God is still able to work even beyond what all we do. So just a, an important thing for us to remember uh, as we see this opening part of these verses. Well, what happens next? After that moment in uh, Jerusalem, the very next thing is that uh, before Paul is before Claudius. He's, he's in the hands of the Roman military leader who is over the city of Jerusalem. We might say he's in the sheriff's custody. Right? And it's not the sheriff of Nottingham, it's the sheriff of Jerusalem, a Roman soldier leader who is in that area. And so in Acts chapter 22, verse 30, through chapter 23, verse 35, he's still in Jerusalem, and they are questioning him, but he's under Roman control, Roman protection, as they're trying to have some kind of a trial for this man. Well, what happens in that moment? Well, again, we're still in Jerusalem at this point. What happens there? Well, the first thing that happens is that Paul is uh, before the council. So the, the Roman leader, Claudius, calls in um, the Jewish council of local leaders. So Jewish leaders, not Roman leaders, but Jewish leaders, who are going to make their case against Paul. And so they come in, in chapter 22, uh, verse 30, and they, they begin to you know, point out their, their situation about Paul. Paul has an opportunity to respond. And so Paul begins to talk, and as he talks, he basically says, I've got a clean conscience in this matter at this point. When he says that, the high priest, who's a part of this council, instructs you know, some person who was in their, their midst to strike Paul in the face. Because they're like, how dare you say you have a clean conscience? How, how can you possibly have a clean conscience? They had already convicted him before they even allowed him to speak. And after that, there's a little bit of an interaction, and Paul can quickly tell that this is not going to be a fair jury trial, um, that this is a deck that is stacked against him. And so, so amazingly, it uh, seems as though the Spirit of God gives Paul a wonderful way out. Paul surveys the room. He sees that there are Pharisees and Sadducees in the room. Pharisees and Sadducees had a very different theological perspective. Pharisees believed in supernatural things. Sadducees really did not. Pharisees believed that there were things like angels and, and a resurrection of the dead. Sadducees did not. And so 
Paul says, I'm here today because of the resurrection of the dead. And when he says that, instead of everybody wanting to get at Paul, suddenly now this room is fighting each other. And so you can imagine the Roman military leader, the sheriff, is looking at these, these religious leaders of the Jews. Now, instead of arguing about Paul, they're arguing with each other about this theological matter. And so you can imagine he's looking at this going, I don't have time for this. What in the world? Why are you involving me? This is like a doctrinal issue. Why don't you go write a book, write a paper, start a blog, get a podcast, debate this someplace else. This is nonsense. This is silly. He doesn't seem like he's done anything wrong. You guys can't agree among yourselves, and you're trying to blame it on this guy. That's my paraphrase. But it's something like that in that moment. Um, but what, what happens there is that there's, there's this, this turn that begins to happen. And the people who are prosecuting, or the, the Jewish leaders who are hoping to take Paul out, realize that they're not going to have a willing co-conspirator in the Roman sheriff. And so they decide, we have to come up with a new plan to take out Paul. So what do they do? Well, what they do is they concoct a scheme um, to attack Paul when, when he's not expecting it. Well, they're not very good at keeping that secret, and someone hears of that secret, hears of that scheme, and that is Paul's nephew. Paul's nephew comes to Paul and says, hey, uncle, there's a plan out there to kill you. And Paul says, okay, go tell that to the Roman leader, the sheriff. And so the nephew goes and tells it to the sheriff, and the sheriff says, this is really bad because Paul is a Roman citizen. That is something that had become clear at this point, and I don't want to get in trouble uh, by not taking care of a Roman citizen at this point. And I don't want him to die on my watch, but I can't protect him in the city of Jerusalem. There's too many snakes in this grass. So he decides that he needs to send Paul out of the city so that he can properly be protected. So he takes him from the location of Jerusalem, which is a city that was run by the Jewish religious leaders with the sheriff kind of overseeing it. And he takes him to a much more secularized city that was fully under Roman control. And that's the city of Caesarea, a uh, place on the sea. There, there are two Caesareas inside of uh, biblical times um, in the Middle East. There was Caesarea Philippi, which was in the northern part of Israel. And then there was a town called Caesarea, just Caesarea, or Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, a little city that was a port city that King Herod, at the time that Christ was born, had built. Basically, had built this saltwater harbor so that goods could be dropped off and imported and exported from the Middle East back to Rome. And because of that, it had become a city of great wealth, uh, but it was fully under Roman control. It was where the, the goods and services of the Middle East were, were shipped and received. And so the Roman leader, the sheriff, says, I can't protect you here. I need to send you to the governor's office up the road to Caesarea. They can protect you there. So they send him. But something interesting that we need to note in this time and in this season is this. A promise came to Paul while he was in Jerusalem. And that promise came in Acts 23 from the Lord himself. It said, the following night, the Lord stood by him. By who? By Paul. And said this, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
Now, what would that indicate to Paul? Just, let's just brainstorm this for a second. He's going to Rome. He's going to Rome, okay? So the one thing it would, it, would, it would signify is that he was going to get a trip to Rome, which, if we remember, remember in that timeline at the beginning, when was the book of Romans written? Before or after this? Romans was written before. When Paul wrote Romans, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I long to go to you Romans. I can't wait to get there. I would love to have it on my itinerary because I think that I could encourage you and you could encourage me. Paul says that in Romans chapter 1. So when Jesus tells Paul in a dream or a vision or however it was communicated that he's going to get to go to Rome, there's a part of Paul that's going, yes, that's been my desire. That's so great. I mean, you know, we might think, you know, if we get to go to Honolulu, see where Jay was born, yes, I get to go to Hawaii. He's like, yes, I get to go to Rome. Not to see the sights, but to see the people and to be able to preach Christ in the center of the universe at that point as far as they were concerned. So there was, there was a sense where that was exciting. But what else would it communicate? Not just that he gets to go to Rome, but what else? He's not going to get killed. Yeah, he's not going to be dead. Right? And there are people who are there to kill him. There's a scheme that is happening. A nephew is coming. Paul, they're, they're going to get you. And Paul could have some confidence in this moment that he wasn't going to die, that it, the story wasn't over, that Jesus had more for him to do. But it was not in that area. And so he has this moment of, of encouragement. Um, of what is to come. Well, what's a response we might see in this section of the book of Acts for us? It's helpful for us to see that God used a pagan army in a corrupt, broken legal process to get Paul to Rome. So what will he use in your life? You know, sometimes we think that the only things at God's disposal are the sacred things, right? Uh, Sunday school or uh, a Christian friend or Bible study. And by God's grace, he does use all of those things. And we ought to pursue community and service opportunities and involvement in the church, all of those kind of things. But what's, what's fascinating to me in this, in this section is to see God use things that were, what from our perspective, outside of the norm for God. Because he's going to use all of these things that are really uh, trying to stamp out the influence of God and through Christ, God using those things to help get Paul to a place of ministry um, in the city of Rome. Uh, when I say a, a pagan army, I mean, of course, the Roman army. At the top of the Roman food chain was the worship of a leader as God, a human leader as God. They thought that the Caesars were God, and they had a whole pantheon of other gods that they followed, kind of this mishmash of Greek mythology and different things. God used the leader of that army that were brutal and, and, and awful to protect Paul in that moment and get him out of the city. It's wild to see. And not only that, he used a corrupt, broken legal process. You know, sometimes people today, we get, we get frustrated with our legal process. We think our legal process is bad in America. Just look at the process that Paul was affording. They arrested him on a mistaken identity charge. They thought he was somebody else. And then they're going to flog him so that he can confess to something that he didn't do. And then after all of that, they detain him for a season, and they don't even give him a fair trial, and people are slapping him in the face when he tries to say he has a clean conscience at this moment. All of that broken corruption and all of those things God uses. And it just reminds me again of Romans chapter 8 and uh, you know, just, just that idea of God can use all things and work them together to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What all things? 
even pagan armies, and corrupt, broken legal processes. God sits sovereign outside of all of those things. And so we can really look at all of our lives and think, God, what can you do? Not, not that God is, is causing all of those things to happen, but the things that God could use to set up an opportunity for us to proclaim the mercies of Christ in the lives of others or to grow in our personal faith to him. Uh, God used those things in Paul's life. He can use those things in ours as well. So second response that we see inside of this verse. So he begins in Jerusalem. He's arrested, and then he is held before the Roman sheriff. But now he has been escorted up to Caesarea, and he is going to be before the governor, the Roman governor over that area, who is Felix. Now, when you think about this idea of Roman governors, it's helpful for us to get oriented to this idea a little bit. So we're going to see two different Roman governors over this area in the verses we're going to look at tonight. Um, these folks were the successors or those who followed a very famous Roman governor to us, and that is Pontius Pilate. So Pilate was a Roman governor, somebody who oversaw the Roman rule in a region of uh, the world inside the Roman Empire. Pilate was one at one time, Felix after him, and then Festus after him. And so we'll see that play out. So the governor at the time of Paul's arrest was this guy named Felix. They uh, take Paul from short journey, not very far, but they had to take him with hundreds of soldiers surrounding him just to protect his well-being, to get him someplace out of the city so they might protect his life. So he shows up in Caesarea. Felix is ruling, and Paul is going to appear before him. So what happens in that moment? Well, one of the things that happens in that moment is that Felix calls up from Jerusalem uh, the, the prosecutors. He, he talks to the high priest and he says, you, you guys need to make your case as to what Paul has done. And so this guy named Tertullus comes and, and makes the case with a lot of flattery and different things towards Felix. And he says, Felix, you're not going to believe what this guy has done. Uh, he's profaning our temple. Uh, he's causing riots all over the world. Um, and, you know, he's a ringleader. This is, this is the way they describe him in verse 5. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this is a beautiful study in how language can be used to twist things, right? The language here is clearly used to twist it to make it sound really bad. What does it mean to say that he was the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes? What do you think that means? Yeah, it sounds like that. But what, what, what really was it? Who were the Nazarenes? Christians, right? And why would they call Christians Nazarenes? Yeah, they, this was a group of people that believed that this one guy from Nazareth was the Messiah, was the Savior, was the promised one. And so because of that, they called them the sect of the Nazarenes. They were those who followed it. And even if you go to Jerusalem today and you were to go to um, the, the, the city on, on the north shot side of the Sea of Galilee, the city of Capernaum, um, and you were to go in, in to see there, you see a very elaborate Jewish synagogue in that city that's much outsized for the size of the community. And the reason why that particular Jewish synagogue is so large is because people wanted to go there to learn about Jesus, right? 
They, they were like, where do we go to learn about Jesus? Well, let's go back to the synagogue where he got his start, where he first taught his sermons. And, you know, there's a little village there and somebody who lived there by the name of Peter. And let's go to Peter's house and let's hang out. And let's hear something about Jesus. So even in the early days of the first century, they, they were known by the region of the world where they thought the Messiah had come. So they call him a, a, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Sounds like he's a leader of a cult. We would say he was one of the first leaders of the Christian movement, right? The first, one of the first proclaimers of the truth. But not just that he, does he call him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, but it also says he was one who stirs up riots throughout the world. Well, is there any truth to that? Well, yeah, right? I mean, there, in a sense there is, because riots broke out. Where did, where did riots break out where Paul went? The answer to that could be defined as everywhere Paul went, right? Because Paul would show up in a town and, and people would be get all worked up. Some people would change their lives and say, we're going to follow that Jesus that you're talking about forever and ever and ever. And other people would say, we've got to kill that guy because he's given that message. In Ephesus alone, you know, these guys were from uh, Asia. The riot that broke out in, in uh, uh, Ephesus was related to the, the trade of idols being impacted because so many people were becoming Christians. Less people were buying idols to the god Artemis because they were becoming Christ followers. And so there was a riot that broke out there. So I say that there, there was a little bit of truth in what they were saying, but it's really twisted, right? And Paul knows it's twisted, and, and really they know it's twisted. And so Paul's defense is, is something like, guys, you know that's not right. You're saying words, but you're not making sense. That's not, in fact, what has happened. And so Paul begins to give his response or his defense, and he begins to walk through his understanding of what has happened. You see that in verses 10 through 21 as he walks through his understanding of what's happened and why he was arrested and the challenge that happened there. And, and he, he basically underlines what happened under Claudius's trial, the sheriff's trial. He says, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Harkening back to his comment about resurrection at that point that caused the Sadducees and the Pharisees to begin fighting one another. So Paul makes this statement. Well, after Paul makes that statement, Felix doesn't know what to do. It's just not a clear-cut case for him. He'd like to pander to the Jewish leaders... Because if trouble gets stirred up there, it could look bad on his report card going back to Rome. He doesn't want trouble, so he's trying to appease the Jewish leaders. And yet he looks at Paul and he's like, I don't think he's done anything wrong. And so he kind of ends up in this stalemate. And he keeps Paul in his custody for quite a while. Um, what we see in verses 22 through verse 27 of chapter 24 is that Felix keeps calling Paul in to have conversations with him about the way. That's what he called it, the way. The Jesus movement. But he will not release Paul, um, nor will he prosecute. He just kind of has this stalemate with him. But there's something important that we need to, to see inside of these verses. It says here in verses 25 to 27, it says, As he reasoned about the righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. In other words, part of the reason why Felix was keeping him there was not because Felix was considering becoming a follower of the way. But he thought, if I keep him here long enough, maybe Paul or one of his friends will bribe him out of here. And maybe I could get something out of this deal that way. But no money comes. So it says he went often and conversed with them. But then it says this, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. In desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. I put that in bold because we need to let that sink in for just a minute. For two years, Paul was kept in prison in Caesarea. Now, it wasn't the worst kind of prison. Um, right here, back here, we were in Caesarea not long ago. What, 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 would you, what, would you, what would you all say about Caesarea? Is it an ugly place or a beautiful place? Right. Good place to be in prison. Yeah, it, it is one of the better places. As a matter of fact, you can go there today and you can go to the very spot where Paul was probably kept. And it is a beautiful oceanfront setting inside of Herod's Praetorium, um, a big you know, complex that was there where, where the military people were and the dignitaries were kept. It was a pagan city. There was a, a pagan temple for worship. There was uh, a place where they ran the um, you know, running of chariots races for gambling and different things. There was a huge theater where entertainment came through. Uh, it was a place of incredible wealth. It was in that location that Paul was kept for two years. However, let's just think about that. He was still kept for two years. So there are worse places he could have been, but he was kept there for two years. Two years is a long time. Now, two years is not as long to me now as it used to be. When I was in college, you just think about you guys, when I was in college, two years felt like forever. Like, to think of two years is like, that is no way. That is just, you know, you might as well say an eternity to tell me two years. Today, it seems like less time. But two years is still a long time to be kept. So, the word comes from God, you're going to Rome. What immediately follows is a two-year imprisonment in Caesarea. So the question might come to us, well, what gives? Why would God keep Paul and his entire group bottled up in, in the Middle East, in prison, in Caesarea, in this pagan town, for that long? Well, I think that there's a good reason for it. One of the reasons why is because the time was not wasted. In this time... One of the particular members of Paul's traveling group would have access to both the, the, the wealth and the opportunity of the city of Caesarea, but also to all of the eyewitnesses to the account of Christ that lived in the Middle East. Who might that have been? I'll give you a hint. He wrote this book. Luke. Luke. When did Luke join the traveling group with Paul? Do you remember? It's on the second missionary journey in what city? He, he, he joined them as they went on into Philippi. So that was where, from the city of Troas into Philippi, Luke joined the team. Though some tradition has placed Luke back in the Middle East earlier than that, there's really no proof that Luke had ever been to the Middle East before that moment. He was a Gentile. He was from either Asia or from Macedonia. And that was where he joined the team. 
Suddenly, for two years, he is in Caesarea, and Paul is kept in prison, but it says that Felix allowed the friends of Paul to come and go, to minister to Paul, but, but to leave and to do other things. Well, during that time, Luke could have talked to a lot of people. Who might Luke have wanted to talk to? If you were, just think about this. Beyond the, the 12 disciples, 11 disciples up the Jews' side, who might you have really wanted to talk to if you were Luke to find out information about Jesus? Mary. Mary, right? Which of the four Gospels includes the most information from Mary's perspective? Luke. Luke. And it's not even close, right? The things in Luke, in, in Luke's Gospel, in chapters 1 and 2, we have the story of Jesus' birth. Who would have known that? Joseph and Mary. By the time Luke gets back to the Middle East, Joseph is dead. Mary is still alive. Lived into her old age under the care of John, uh, the apostle. And so Mary is still alive. So she is recounting the story of the shepherds and that came to visit and, and all of those events that we think of at Christmas time. How was that information passed to Luke who grew up in Asia or in Macedonia? Well, it would have had to come through eyewitnesses. That's what Luke tells us at the beginning of Luke's gospel. He got the information from eyewitnesses that he talked to. In this two-year period, though we don't know for sure, it makes sense to me that during that time, Luke gets access to that kind of information. And Luke gets to talk to the other apostles to fill in the rest of his gospel, the different stories and accounts of different things that have happened, as well as filling in the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts, 14, 15 chapters of the book of Acts. Because Luke doesn't join the team until chapter 16. Where did he get his info about the things that happened in Samaria with, with, uh, uh, with Philip? Where do we get the information about the things that happened with Cornelius and Peter? Well, it would have happened through the conversations that he could have had while he was in the Middle East waiting on Paul in this area. And so for Paul, this looks like Paul is spending his time talking to somebody that just wants a bribe. Right? It would have felt like a waste. But what was the Lord doing in that moment? Well, we don't know for sure what he was doing in Paul's life, but we know what he was preserving for you and me. A record of the birth of Jesus and the movement of Christianity in the early days was being gathered by Luke in that time. Isn't that wild to think about? Such an encouragement to think of what the Lord is doing. Sometimes we just always want to know, God, what are you doing in my life? And it all is about me. The reality is, there's a much bigger story going on. And the Lord is doing things in the world and big things. And sometimes we feel like we're stuck for a couple of years in a spot, but the Lord is at work doing something big. Paul's imprisonment slowed the team down and gave Luke time to interact and all of that began with generosity in their hearts to bring an offering to the, to the saints in Jerusalem. It's amazing the things that God did to get Luke there and how we have been blessed because of that. No time is wasted in our lives either, friends. Well, what happens next? Well, there's a change of power. Just as in our world, there's outgoing leaders and incoming leaders. Felix is on the out. Portius Festus is on the way in. And he becomes the new governor. Well, when he becomes the new governor, he's like, okay, what do, I, what do I do now? So he takes over in Caesarea, and in that, you know, the exit interview with Felix, Felix says, there's this guy who's in prison, and you're going to have to deal with it. I couldn't ever figure it out. I never got any money for it. I can't figure out how to please the Jews in this moment. So I just left him over there in room 17, 15 down the, down the road there. You're going to have to figure out what to do with this guy. And so he decides, I'm going to be more proactive than Felix, who just let it dwell on for two years. He's like, I need to, to get him back 
to the city because it sounds like the problem is a religious problem. And the place where you settle Jewish religious problems is in Jerusalem. So we need to send this guy back to Jerusalem so that that problem can be taken care of. And when he tells Paul that plan, Festus' desire was to send Paul back to Jerusalem, Paul says, ha, 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 that's not the way this is going to work. And Paul actually plays a card consistent with his right as a Roman citizen. And that was to have his case heard at the highest court, not as a Jew in the religious courts of Jerusalem, but as a Roman citizen before Caesar himself. He says, I'm going all the way up the food chain. I'm taking my case to the, to the Supreme Court of Rome, and I make my appeal to Caesar. Well, after he makes that appeal, uh, this great interaction happens here. He says, if then I'm, Paul says, if then I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So after two years in Caesarea, Paul gets his orders that he's going to go on to Rome, as Jesus had promised him, all the way back in chapter 22, two years earlier. Yeah? So did he end up having his case for a question? Yeah, it didn't actually get before Caesar himself that we know of. Um, but he, he gets there, and he is heard by those in Caesar's household. So we'll see that in a minute. It's pretty interesting. Okay. It's a great question to ask. Um, we, we don't necessarily know for sure how that played out, but we do know that he does make it to Rome, and he is heard by at least those in Caesar's household or uh, those who would have been in his government. Interesting. Yeah, because yeah, I asked his I've actually been listening to a podcast on the history of Rome, and yeah. we're in the point of right now where where like 37 AD, where Tiberius Caesar just passed away. Yeah. And so it's pretty interesting. This is almost concurrent events yeah, to this, right about, before this, about 20 years before that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Fascinating. So we, we go from, from this point um, on into a response that we'd have from this section. And I, I think it's just a, an important thing to see here, that it's not antithetical to our faith to exercise the rights that are given to us. It's not antithetical to our faith to exercise the rights that are given. Paul, on a number of occasions throughout these trials, uses the rights given. They get ready to flog him earlier under the, the sheriff in Jerusalem. And Paul says, you can't flog me. I'm a Roman citizen. What's he doing there? He's pointing to his Bill of Rights. Right? He says, hey, according to Article 1, the Bill of Rights, you can't flog me without a, a trial, without a reason. And that, he avoids flogging in that situation. In this instance... They're trying to send him back to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to make appeal out of Jerusalem to the high court of the land and send it all the way to the Supreme Court, all the way to Caesar. So Paul uses rights that are given to him as a Roman citizen as a part of this thing. And, and at no point is Paul you know, looked down upon. It's, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no shade placed on that idea anywhere inside of the Scripture. Um, and so you know, it, it's something that's important for us to see that... You know, as citizens of a country that affords us some rights related to our religion, um, that it's okay for us to, to press those. Now, here's the thing. The government could change those rights. And if they do, we don't stop worshiping Jesus. We would then become lawbreakers to worship Jesus because we, we follow him and not the law. But insofar as the law gives us some rights, it's okay for us to exercise those rights 
inside of uh, our practice of our faith in Christ. And, and we see that with Paul, and it's, it's a, a, an example for you know, followers of Jesus today to, to utilize the freedoms and opportunities that we are given under the system in which we live um, as we continue to worship. So, fourth thing that we see in terms of well, what happens next? Well, the next thing that happens is that Paul appears before Agrippa. So the question is, who is Agrippa? Well, Agrippa is the great-great-grandson of Herod the Great. Who is Herod the Great? Herod the Great is, is a greatly terrible man. Okay, that's, that's the bottom line. But Herod the Great was the leader of, uh, the local leader of Palestine when Jesus was born. He's the one that gave the decree to kill all of the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem because he was so concerned about Messiah being born in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth when the wise men came. Remember that? Um, Herod built the port of Caesarea. He built a lot of stuff all over Israel. He built the expanded temple complex. He did a lot of things like that. But he was a brutal, brutal, dictatorial man. Um, and after his death, what happened over the next number of years was power didn't stay with him, but it was broken up to various children of his in, in little provinces and areas. And so this Agrippa is actually King Agrippa II, who is the local leader uh, of the area at the time of Paul's life. So you think about it this way. If, if Felix and Festus and Pilate were the Roman governors and there were little sheriffs, Roman sheriffs in each of the big cities in the area, there was also a local leader who was over the political things that were considered the day-to-day -day operations of Israel um, and customs of that land. And that was also appointed by Rome, and it was this guy, Agrippa. So this local guy um, that, that was leading the area under Roman allowance. Uh, but he had different responsibilities, like that Agrippa and, and the kings of Israel at this time could appoint the high priest, just whoever they liked the best, they could make that appointment, those kinds of things. They had some limited power. Um, in those areas. So Agrippa's in town in Caesarea, and Festus says, Agrippa, come on over here. I need a second set of eyes on this. This guy, Paul, has made an appeal to go to Rome. And so I'm going to send him to Rome, but I, it's going to be embarrassing if I send this guy all the way to Rome, and I can't even say why I'm sending him there. And so you've been around here for a long time, Festus would say. I just arrived. I need a second set of eyes. Could you help me listen to this guy and then tell me in your own words what the case is against him so that we can write a good letter for the charges of why we're sending him on to Caesar? Because Caesar's not going to be happy for this guy to show up. And we at expense and time and all this stuff, and we don't even know why he's here. So I need to know why he's here. So Agrippa, again, this is my paraphrase, but this you can go back and read it and, and see a little bit for yourself what, what's happening. So Agrippa and his wife Bernice get together. And they hang out listening to Paul again in the town of Caesarea. What happens? Well, there's this handoff from Festus to Agrippa. And then there is the message of Paul. And I would encourage you, um, for the sake of time, I don't think we have time to read all of this tonight. But chapter 26 of Paul is worth your quiet time tonight. Before you go to bed, read Acts 26. Because what you see in Acts 26 is the message that Paul gave um, before Agrippa in that moment where he shares his story. He talks about 
you know, how he was a persecutor of the church. And then he talks about how he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He talks about the transformation that happened in his own life. And he talked about how this message that had transformed his soul, he now was, was commissioned to go and to proclaim that message to the ends of the earth, to Gentile people everywhere. And he is laying all of this out before Agrippa. But what's also interesting to see is not just the message that Paul preached, but also to see Agrippa's response and really the persuasion that Paul uses with Agrippa in that moment. And so I, I want us to look. I, I, I'm going to read verses 27 through 32. Beginning in verse 27 is on the screen. For the sake of space, we end at verse 29, but I'm, I'm going to read it all, this section. So it gets to this, this point in the conversation. And Paul says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He says, I know that you believe. In other words, Agrippa, you're, you're the local guy. You're, you're not Festus. You're not confused. You're the local guy. You've been around here. You know this stuff. You've heard the prophets. So I know that you understand these things. And Agrippa said to Paul, um, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, Paul, are you trying to evangelize me? You're on trial before me. I've got all the power. You've got none of it. And you're, you're persuading me. You're asking me questions. Agrippa's blown away by this and at least a little bit curious. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What a, what a beautiful statement, right? That Paul says in that moment. It's just amazing. He says, look, you got it, Agrippa. I'm being transparent here. I'm not just here to have a trial. I'm here to ask you for your soul and life, to give it to Christ. Because, not because I want you to be in prison like me, but because I want you to have eternal life like I do. He makes that appeal. Well, then it says the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or even imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. In other words, if you had brought me in earlier, Festus, We'd have let this guy go a long time ago because I don't think there's anything wrong with what he's proclaiming. Um, and, and yet they said he's got to go to, got to, go to Rome. But in the, if you think in that moment, it was one of those, you know, oh, Paul was going, oh, man, why did I appeal to Rome? No, no, no. Why did Paul appeal to Rome? He wanted to go to Rome. Because he wanted to go there, but also what else? Jesus told him, you're going to go to Rome, right? So Paul is not disappointed, um, though there is a bit of irony in that statement, as he finds out he's going to get to go to Rome. And the response, I think, that we have in this section is we're reminded again, and if you go back and you read chapter 26, you're reminded again of the power of his story. The power of his story. Not the power of our story. Sometimes we think about, you know, there's power in, in our story. And, and there is, in a sense... But the real power, especially as it relates to evangelizing those who don't know Christ, is not in telling a story of us, but in telling the story of him with our life merely as the background. You know, when people tell the story of their conversion, if they tell that story accurately, the one who receives the glory and the honor is not them who figured it out, but it's the God who had mercy on them and saved them. That was clearly the case with Paul. 
Paul is, is very clear. I was rounding up Christians and I was killing them. I was on the wrong path, on the wrong way, but God had mercy on my soul. He changed my life forever through the work of Jesus Christ, and therefore I'm headed in this direction. Paul is very clear. The hero of his story was Jesus, not, not Paul. And, and when we tell our story to others, um, we need to think about telling it in a way that does not focus on us, but instead focuses on him. Because if we focus on us when we tell our story, there are two possibilities of how people would react to it. One possibility is they think you're just full of it, right? They think that you think you're better than you are, right? Because nobody's that great. And so they're like, look, look, I, I've known you long enough to know that you've got your own warts and pebbles, right? You, you, you're not fooling me. And so if, if our story makes us look great, those that know us well might just want to dismiss it in some way. Or if they think it's true, it might cause them to go, well, that might be true for you because you're so awesome, but I'm not awesome like you are. But if the hero of the story we tell is Jesus, guess what that has in common for all of us? The same hero of Paul's story is the same hero of mine, is the same hero of Todd's, is the, is the same hero of all of ours, right? And so we just need to remember uh, that was we begin to share our testimony and faith with others. How can we share our story and, and share it honestly about our brokenness, but not glory in our brokenness, glory in his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace, what he's done for us in Christ. Well, what happens next? Well, the next thing that happens is they take off to Rome. And you might think at this point, it is smooth sailing, pun intended. Uh, it is not smooth sailing. Because as they take off and go in this, this journey from Caesarea to Rome, it is anything but easy. It is, in fact, quite difficult. And it has to do with a lot of things. The, the prevailing winds and the time of year that they were traveling and all of those things. But it leads to a number of different problems for Paul. So what happens? Well, they start out on the trip. Then... Paul's like, this isn't good. We need to turn back. There was both supernatural knowledge that Paul had, but also there was uh, uh, just observation that they were trying to sail into headwinds that were too strong. Um, and there was this impending storm that was coming. But the leaders on the boat decided they're going to press on, and they end up wrecking the boat. And so they end up in, in the water, and they end up on the island of Malta. While they're on the island of Malta, uh, they're drying off around a fire. A poisonous snake bites Paul's hand. Um, but Paul doesn't die, which causes the people of Malta to think that Paul is a god. I mean, all kinds of wild things are happening. But while they're on Malta, uh, after that event, suddenly Paul has an audience among the people of Malta. And he begins to proclaim Christ to them. And, and many are believing and miracles are being performed on that island. And then they finally make it to Rome. But one of the things that I think it's helpful for us to remember during this season of this journey to Rome is that during this whole time, Paul is ministering to those that he's traveling with. Paul wasn't like, man, when I get to Rome, I'm really going to be in some ministry. Paul was ministering to people right where he was. Right where he was. In the boat, just as he did with Felix and Festus and Agrippa and those back in Caesarea and Jerusalem. So Paul on the boat is able to minister to them and, and even minister to them in the midst of the fear the crew had as the boat was getting ready to sink. Paul says, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. 
we're going to survive this experience. And he gives them instruction, he gives them encouragement, and they all ended up, the entire crew of the boat ended up surviving that crash. Um, but we see all those things begin to take place. So what's a response that we might have in, in that journey? Um, I, I think that a response that we need to have is we need to remember that when God is in something, the path is not always smooth sailing. You know, sometimes we think that if God is in it, that there, it'll, it'll just be easy. And if things get hard, that means that we must have wandered off from God's plan. But this experience, and you know, remember, it began with a two-year delay in Caesarea. And then after that two-year delay in Caesarea, it, it had a shipwreck, it had a snake bite, it had all of this stuff um, that would have been really, you know, wow. Like, we, we read it today, and we read it kind of flat emotions. You know, like this happened, that happened. I mean, I just summarized it, and like none of us were gasping. Like, oh my word, you know, because we, he made it there, right? We, we he didn't die of that snake bite. He didn't die of that shipwreck. We understand the drama is gone, but Paul's living it in real time. And the, those who are on the boat are living it in real time. It would have been emotional and difficult and challenging and frustrating and doubt-inspiring for some, even at times. Um, but God was clearly in it. It was God's plan that Paul go to Rome, and it was his plan that he would even go there uh, at the timing that he did, as it was delayed those two years. And so we see all of this transpire here. And it just reminds us again that even if our lives are, are difficult and a rough patch, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten us or that we're outside of God's will. It's always helpful for us to examine what we're doing if we have wandered into the weeds. But just because we're experiencing difficulty doesn't mean that we have. Well, where does it end? The book ends in Rome. Paul finally makes it there. And in chapter 28, verses 15 through 31, uh, we see Paul finally make it to the city that he had longed to visit, as we saw in Romans chapter 1. Paul gets there. He makes it all the way from here to there. Uh, when he shows up in that city, what happens? Well, the first thing that happens is that he is placed under house arrest. He wasn't taken to a prison, but he was allowed to rent an apartment um, where he was guarded by a Roman soldier. Um, now, you can, you can just imagine what that experience would have been like for that Roman soldier. You know, you're chained to Paul. Now, they, they were chained to all different kinds of people. You know, like some of them were chained to people that were murderers and thieves. But one soldier was chained to Paul under house arrest. When he showed up, Paul's like, hey, how are you? And he could be able to hear the good news of Jesus again and again and again during the entirety of his two years of imprisonment in Rome. While he's there, the first thing that he does is the Jewish leaders in Rome show up to interact with him. Paul tells them what's going on, how he got there. Um, some of them are interested, others are not. Um, but then... There's a split that happens between Paul and the Jews there because they realize that he is of the sect of the Nazarene, not just a Jew. And he begins to open up his ministry as he has done throughout the book of Acts, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well, proclaiming the good news there. And he really got to pastor a church in Jerusalem from his house arrest for a period of two years. So these two-year periods, couple of years in Corinth. We saw him spend a couple of years in Ephesus. He spent a couple of years 
in um, Tarsus. He spent a couple of years in Antioch. He spent a couple of years in Caesarea. Uh, and he spends a couple of years in Rome as well, uh, able to influence people for Christ. And while he is in that two-year imprisonment, he also is able to write a number of the letters that he wrote to churches like the, the Church of the Philippians uh, during that season. What else do we need to know about this season? Well, I just think this is interesting. In verse 16 it says, When we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Remember, chained to a Roman soldier. During this time, he writes the letter to the Philippians. But what does he say to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 22? All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So as Paul is there for that two years imprisoned in Rome, who is converting to Christianity? Maybe the soldier guarding him. Maybe other soldiers in the rotation of guarding him. Maybe people in Caesar's household, but, but some who are in that very inner core of Caesar are hearing the message of Jesus because of Paul's imprisonment and are converting to Christianity. Uh, we see how that interplays even with Paul's letter to the Philippians. So what do we do with this? Well, it says in chapter 28, he lived there for two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I love that. Acts doesn't really resolve. It just stops. It's just a cliffhanger. Right? What happened to him? When did he get out of, out, of, out, of, out of Rome? Where did he go after he was released after that two years? Well, it just leaves as a cliffhanger. But it leaves as a cliffhanger, I think, on purpose. Because the story of the church isn't over there. And it's not even over at the end of Paul's life. But the story of the church continues even today. A prominent church planning organization today is called the Acts 29 Network. How many chapters are there in the book of Acts? 28. What's meant by the Acts 29 Network? It's that Jesus is still building his church. Even today. Even in this place. And so we get to see the continuation of our role proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with boldness and without hindrance everywhere we go. We connect with Paul even in this. So what is our response at this point? Our response, I think, would be to understand that God will use you today, not just someday. You know, it's, it, I love it that Paul didn't say, you know, when I get out of prison in Rome, I'm really going to have a ministry. He realized that in that moment, he would have a ministry, just as he did in Caesarea, just as he did on the boat. It's just a great reminder for us. All too often, we, we think that, you know, God will use me someday. Like, he'll use me after this class is done, or after the semester is over, or when I get a real job, or after the kids are born, or after I'm an empty nester, or... God will really have some use for me then. Or we look backwards and we say, you know, God used me back then, but my time is done. That line of thinking is nowhere to be found with Paul. Everywhere he went, in every season, he did not say, maybe God will use me someday. But he thought, how will you use me today in this setting, God, for your purposes? And really, I think that's the, the hope that all of us would have as well. How will God use us? In this day, not someday, but in this day, according to his plans. Well, friends, 
we've walked through uh, the entirety of the book of Acts in really, really rapid fashion. Um, in that over five weeks, we've gone through 28 chapters. But my hope is that at this pace, you're able to see really the, the fulfillment of the growth of the church in the early days, how it was contagious all the way from Jerusalem to, from their understanding, the ends of the earth, according to the promise of Jesus and the work of the Spirit for the church. Um, and hopefully in that, you see in us some hope and encouragement for what it looks like for us to follow Christ uh, to today as well. Um, thank you so much, whether you've been online or you've been here with us for hanging in there through this, this journey as we move quickly through this. Um, and know that, that though this class is done just like uh, the book of Acts ends at a cliffhanger, this class ends at a cliffhanger. And that this class is done, but next week on, at this time, uh, John Abernathy will be with us to help walk through what happened next, what happened in those next 300 years as the church continued to grow. We're, we're going to see that uh, next. And so we'd love to have you uh, with us for that. Um, over the next three weeks. Um, you, you know, you think I went fast? Uh, you know, he's going to cover 300 years. I only covered 20, right? He's going to cover 300 years in three weeks. I, I covered 20 in five. So anyway, uh, that's just because he's that much better than me. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see that uh, the next couple weeks. But also, just again, wanted to encourage you to, to be with us in the next few weeks as we look at a perspective um, on understanding the world we live in from a Christian lens uh, in our main services on Sunday. 9, 10, 15, 11, 30, and online at 10, 15 hours. So let me pray for us, and uh, just thankful that all of you have invested this time with us. Lord, thanks for this time, and thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Acts and how you've preserved it for us so that we would have access to it today, uh, that we might know who you are, um, and, and even that you would give us the faith to embrace it and to see the story of the church continue to grow and to develop in our own lives. We pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to, to, to be people like Paul who are just moved by your work in our lives and that we get a part of the story of Jesus as it is expanding in its reach around the world, even into our neck of the woods. Thank you so much for the privilege of being with these dear people over the last five weeks. I pray a special blessing on their lives as a result of the investment they've made in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. I'm glad I came. Yeah, I'm glad you came, too.